God's Word, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. All right. So let's pray quickly, or pray as long as it takes. Father, we thank you again for worship, and we thank you for your word. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would make me your mouthpiece, that you would anoint me with your Holy Spirit, that what is proclaimed and preached today may be your word to us from this text. And Father, I pray for each of us to have ears and hearts ready to apply, ready to wrestle. That you would give us a Berean spirit, that we would take the word preached and, and plant ourselves in your word to see its truth. Father, we pray your promise that your word does not return void. And we pray that word that Jesus spoke to pay attention to what you hear for the measure that you hear will be measured to you and more. Father, reward us with careful, attentive ears and give us more hearing and more understanding of your glorious gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, as most of you are probably familiar, our purpose statement at River Community Church, which is at the bottom of your bulletin, is that we help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the purpose statement uh, that we have here at River. It's what we seek to do. It's our focus. And today it is a happy, happy day because we are going to see that living in and living out the good news of Jesus Christ is also Paul's purpose statement for the church in Colossae. We are going to see in our passage today, that what he calls that church to do is not to, to be fancy and big and, and inventive and different, but to be committed to the simple message of the good news of Jesus Christ, to live in it and to live it out. And if they commit themselves simply to that, they will have all that they need. They will have confidence and assurance and all that they need to face today, tomorrow, and into eternity. That's what Paul wants for the Colossians. That is what your elders at this church want for you. And that is why we put the bead, the focus, and all of our weight centered upon preaching the gospel so that you live in it and you live it out in your daily lives. This message is for the whole family of God. As I was preparing this message, I, I was thinking about our children's church graduation and, and saw how important what we are going to say today applies to every generation, to the young and to the old, to everyone in between. So this word today is a, is a, is a call to children to pay attention. It's a call to parents to rise up and do the task of discipling your children. It's a call to the church family, uh, old and new, 
to be committed to one another, to make the word alive in our midst. When we grasp this word, I I believe you will be benefited with with a joy that cannot be shaken. You, You will have peace as you learn to live in the good news. You will have a confidence that does not ebb and flow or, or increase or decrease based on whether you get compliments or, or likes on Facebook or whether your business plan is successful or whether uh, uh, you go to the party or whether you uh, get the promotion or whether you get the raise. You will have a confidence that rests unshakable because you live in the good news of Jesus. And today's word is so practically suited to teach us how to live in the good news. Notice that the very first word of our passage is therefore. That's a key word in every Pauline epistle. Therefore, it is where Paul connects what he has instructed us in the beginning to bring us to a place of application, to a summation and an exhortation. The therefore means that in light of what he has just taught us, in light of what he has just brought to our attention, and what is that? He has presented to us this magnificent hymn of Christ telling us that he is supreme in creation because he is the creator. And he is supreme in redemption because he is the single redeemer. And uh, we saw that that it is Paul's duty, his God-given responsibility to preach this gospel wherever he goes. We see that he has been committed to it because he delights in it. He declares it. He disciples it. And he defends it. And now he says, therefore, having laid all of that out, having put together this theology of the sufficiency of Jesus, the message that Jesus is enough, he says, therefore, walk in it. Therefore, live in it. And so what has come before girds what we see today. Paul's thesis of what he wants for every Christian is laid out in verses 2, 6, and 7. It is basically this. Live in the gospel that you received. And so the question for us today as we go through this text is, what does it mean to live in the good news of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to live in the good news of Jesus Christ? Paul gives us two primary answers. The second answer, if you look at your outline, has some subpoints to it. So it'll have more of our time. But if we want to live in the good news of Jesus Christ, it means two things. First, that we recognize that the gospel gives us life. And second, that the gospel is our life. And we will go through those piece by piece. Let us understand what it means that the gospel gives us life. This we take from that very first phrase in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. The word received is is an important word. It's almost a technical word in uh, Paul's letters for describing something official and definite and clear that has been transmitted, has been passed on. It is, it is speaking to defined content. And what he is talking about as being received is the defined, clear gospel message. 
which is set and established. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 5, Paul lays out this gospel message using the language of received and delivered. He is telling us that the gospel message that he is a minister of is a set message he receives and delivers and that we receive and deliver. Hear this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. This is the gospel message that Paul received and that he delivers. And often he uses the shorthand of Jesus Christ the Lord to to kind of wrap all of that up, because that is the the core meaning of, of the gospel message. But this is the message that he said he has received, and it is the message that he says that the Colossians have received. Now here's something very important for us. The same gospel that Paul received is the gospel that we receive. We are receiving that same message that Paul said is, was of, of first importance, that I received, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again. That is the same message that we preach 2,000 years later. The message doesn't change. The message doesn't get added to or modified. It is transhistorical. It is transcultural. We don't preach a different gospel based on what your felt needs are. We don't preach a different gospel based on your socioeconomic status or your ethnicity or your country of origin. We will preach the same gospel if the Lord tarries 200 years from now. Because it is one gospel. The gospel that Paul received is the gospel that you received. And if it had power to transform Paul's life, it has the same power to transform yours. Amen? And so what is the gospel? What, or, or why is this, is, uh, this so important? Why is the gospel message and being fixed on the gospel message so important? Because it alone gives life. It alone gives life. Here's what the gospel message does. It tells, Paul tells us in, in uh, Colossians 2.27 that the gospel is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The resurrected Lord is in you, bonded to you. You can no more perish than Christ can perish because Christ has bound himself to you in the gospel. And that is the only life that will never perish. Every other thing in this world will fade, will will diminish, will die. But what is bound to Christ, the resurrected Lord, will have life and extinguishable. And so, the gospel alone gives us life. 
And Paul describes the gospel in shorthand here by saying that it is you received Christ Jesus the Lord. The gospel is simply this, that you have placed your trust in Jesus as the Savior and the Lord. Savior and Lord, those cannot be separated Because Jesus is one person, and you receive Jesus, you receive him as Savior and Lord. That is what it means when we look at the the meaning of Christ. Christ is, is the word for Savior or Deliverer. And Lord, well, we know what that means. But those are together. To have Jesus is to have him as Savior and Lord. Now, there is a debate in the commentaries because the Greek allows you to go either way. Is Paul using the word Christ as a name of Jesus? Or is he using the word Christ as a title for Jesus? I think the Greek tilts a little bit towards calling uh, the, the, the word Christ a title of Jesus so that you could translate it as Jesus the Christ, the Lord. At any rate... The meaning of Christ is still Savior and Deliverer. And whether Christ is considered Jesus' name or whether it is considered Jesus' title doesn't change who he is. I will say this, that I think it is fascinating, incredibly fascinating, and and an incredible witness to who Jesus really is, is that by the, the third decade, even less than that, of when Jesus rose from the dead, he was considered the Christ as a name. Who is Christ? That's Jesus. So, so convinced is that, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus Christ became his name. This is, this is like uh, when, when somebody is so exceptional at sports like a, a quarterback, and he's just called the arm. Or Frank Sinatra is just called the voice. The only thing that you can know as the Christ is Jesus. There is no other Christ. There's no runner-up. There's no uh, uh, finishing gallery of potential Christs. It is so definitive that Jesus is the Christ that that became his name. And we forget that. But we are told in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, these words from from Peter, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. His is the only name of salvation. That makes him the only Christ. And that's why he has confessed Jesus Christ. So the gospel gives us life. How does it give us life? We receive him as Savior and Lord. Have you received him? Have you professed with your mouth that he is the risen Lord? Have you believed in your heart that he saves you from your sins? Have you received him as Savior and Lord? Because that is... Life. And those who receive that message move out of the domain of death and into the kingdom of life. 
but you must receive that message. So not only do we recognize what it means to live in the good news of Jesus Christ is that the gospel gives us life, but now secondly we recognize that the gospel is our life. The gospel is our life. And we look at the rest of verse 6. Oh, we'll read all of verse 6 again. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So walk in him. Now, this is a bit nerdy, but this is kind of important to understand the way that Paul writes and the way Paul thinks. In this verse, we have a classic example of the indicative and the imperative relationship that Paul uses. The indicative is just a verb tense that declares, that indicates. And the imperative is then a command, a what should you do in light of that. So here we have received in the indicative and walk in the imperative. What Paul is doing here is providing a declaration news, and then a call to response. But theologically, there is something incredibly important about the relationship between these these two verbs, the indicative coming before the imperative, and that is this. In the gospel, done precedes do. This is huge. You receive the gospel because it is done done. You are saved in Christ. You are justified in Christ. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It is done by faith. You receive it. And there is no question about whether it is sufficient. But having received that finished word, you are motivated to do, to live out that good news. And so Paul has a a very basic truth. If you have received salvation, live in your salvation. Walk in your salvation. There is something dramatically incongruous that there are people out there who say, I am saved, and they live a life that completely denies any word of their Lord and Savior. That is incongruous. That is the definition of hypocrisy. And it calls into question whether you are really resting and receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. So when we see this word walk, Paul is basically saying live what you believe. He uses the word walk again in uh, uh, chapter 3 verse 7 where he says it uh, about the former life. In these, he says, you too once walked when you were living in them. You see there that walked and living in them are are synonymous, are parallel terms. So when Paul says, walk in the gospel, he is saying, live in the gospel. I mean, this is basic. The gospel that gives us life ought to be our life. It makes absolutely no sense to say, the gospel gave me life, now I live as far away from it as possible. No, if it gives us life, it is our life. And how does the gospel become our life? Paul shows, as he expands in verse 7, what living in the gospel means. 
with four very uh, picturesque verbs. He is going to tell us that the, the, the living in the good news is to be rooted in it, to be built up in it, to be established in it, and to be overflowing with thanksgiving for it. So if you follow in your outline, we're going to break down those four meanings. We're going to see that living in the gospel means that it grounds us, it forms us, it confirms us, and it activates us. Let's look at that very first one. It grounds us. That is what the word rooted is communicating. I love Paul. He has such a a broad understanding of so many subjects that he he pulls a term from horticulture, from, from trees and plants to describe what the gospel does. And so he says that, that you are grounded or you are rooted in the gospel. It's a very strong term. It, it literally means that you are firmly rooted. Again, the, the, the sense of the verb is, is, is in the perfect tense, which means that it is, it is done. That rooting is, is accomplished, but it is also ongoing. It's in the passive tense, which tells us that what roots you in the gospel is God himself working through you. And so if we wanted to translate this more accurately, we would say that you have been firmly rooted. How? It is because when you receive the gospel, Christ is in you. Christ lives in yourself. He is is there working on your will and your affections through the Holy Spirit. When we are in the gospel, God is at work in us. And so, if God is at work in us, we are going to uh, show a life that is animated and about the gospel. And the first thing that we do is that we root ourselves as deeply into it as we can. But we don't mistake that the, the, the rooting is, is our work alone. The rooting is God working through us. Now, I I want us to think about this idea of roots. I actually studied trees this week. It was fun. But listen, roots. There there are, are, are three things that I believe are essential about this metaphor. Roots get life from the soil. That's, that's what they do, first and foremost. They get life, nutrients, water from the soil. And if you've ever tried to dig up a tree, the roots are everywhere. They go in every direction. They go wide. They go deep. They finger out into every possible area in the dirt. They are hungry. They permeate the dirt. In fact... Uh, it, is, it is the case that the, the four to seven times the area of the tree is under the ground from what you see above the ground, meaning that big canopy of leaves is supported by a root system that takes up four to seven times the area. A humongous amount of the tree is unseen, but it is down in the soil and it's there because it's getting life. 
And so Paul says to be rooted. What does it mean to be rooted? It means that Christ is our soil. Christ is the dirt that we are just pouring all of our, of our, of our roots into so that there is just so much of the life of Christ coming into us. We permeate the message of Christ. We are like the, the tree in, in Jeremiah chapter 17. This is, this is a good one for the sermon challenge, kids. That's worth 10 points. Jeremiah 17, he says, uh, verses 7 and 8, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You see, when we are planted in Jesus as our Lord, those roots are nourished in a way that makes us firm, which is the, the, the uh, uh, second uh, thing about trees and their roots, is that they stabilize. The, 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 the roots are what keep the tree from falling over in a windstorm. They keep us from falling. They make us able to be strong against temptation, against struggle. If you go to the parable of the soils that Jesus taught in Mark chapter uh, 4, you'll recall that, that the, the plants that are uh, seed that is thrown on the rocky soil fails to persevere because they have no root. Listen. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. You see, receiving the word and not becoming rooted in it is setting us up for a day of disaster. To have the word strengthen us and hold us through whatever storm requires us to be rooted deeply in that gospel, in the word. And then third, the third thing that the roots do is they supply that life to the whole tree. Healthy roots equals a healthy tree. How do you know the roots are healthy? You see fruit upon the tree. But you don't get fruit without healthy roots. The roots are primary. As Jesus tells us in the 15th chapter of, his, of John's gospel, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, it is the roots that are pulling the life of the vine, that are pulling the life of Christ into the extremity of the branches that is essential for that branch to be healthy and fruitful. So the roots supply life. And I, I believe there's an important principle that, that I want to make sure everybody understands when we talk about living in and living out. 
living in comes first. You cannot live out what you are not living in. And so trees spend a lot of their time and a lot of their energy in their early days completely underground, just getting their roots out. Because the tree cannot be healthy until the roots have found the healthy soil. And so that is an apt metaphor for us. Root yourselves in the gospel. Root yourselves in the word. Kids, I give you that sermon challenge because this is part of the formation of you knowing the word and pressing it into your heart. It's not necessary, but it is good. And I encourage you to take the opportunity to, 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 to learn, to listen, and to grasp the depth and riches that comes through the preached word in doing that. I, I want to challenge the adults. Are you rooting yourself in the Word? Are you taking every opportunity? I, I believe that there are, are great teachers at the Sunday school hour at this church. One is taking us through Revelation. One is taking us through, I believe, Samuel right now. They're great prophet, great opportunities to learn, and all it requires is being here an hour earlier. I would encourage you, to, to, to find a plan for family devotions, to, to take the, the children's church, uh, New City Catechism, and speak through those questions through the week. Let that grow. Let that root you. But second, the gospel is our life, not only because it grounds us, but also because it forms us. It says being built up in him. Paul moves to another metaphor. This metaphor is from architecture. Again, it's in the passive sense, which means that God is primarily uh, or is, is acting in this uh, as well. So what's being built? When, when Paul says uh, being built up in him, we come from a very individualistic culture. And perhaps built up is for you the picture of, of going up levels of Donkey Kong, you know, or, 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 or getting extra levels in, in Tetris or something. Building up, going higher, making yourself into this incredibly tall tower of immense spirituality. I don't actually think that's what it has in mind. Because when Paul talks about the building metaphor, nine times out of ten, he is talking about us being built into something God is building, which is the temple, the church, the people of God. Listen to Ephesians, the sister epistle to Colossians, chapter 2, 21. He says, in whom, that's Christ, the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see the image. God is building us together into a house that brings him glory, that manifests his truth his reality in this world. Peter says that we are living stones. Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 2, 4, and 5, these words, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up, 
as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So when Paul says being built up in him, I believe he is saying being built into the church. Paul has a a picture of what we are in the church. We are not consumers. We are stones mortared in, fixed and held. We exist together as stones. We hold on to one another. We are giving support to some stones while other stones are giving support to us. The whole picture of a, of a brick wall, you, you reduce a brick from the wall, you create instability for the whole structure. That is the picture. You belong in the church. You are a living stone. The church's life is, is there for you to receive and your life is there for you to give it. The vitality that we are to have in the gospel is is us to others and others to us. But that requires us to be built into the church. Living in the gospel is to become, as Paul says in verse 2, two, people who are knit together in love. Knit together in love. So when we recognize these terms being built up, living in the gospel means to be in community means to be connected to God's people. Perhaps this is too simplistic, but I think it's close. Living in the gospel means we live in the church. As Paul says in Colossians 2.19, we'll get to someday soon, not holding, they not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Do you see that the life of the head is poured into the body, which are joined together like members of a body or bricks in a building? And so if we want to live in the gospel, we need to be living in the church. Are you connected vitally to the church? Supporting others as others support you. Life comes through being in the church. Next, living in the gospel. We live in the gospel because it confirms us. Paul says, being established in the faith. The word established is another metaphorical term. It, It comes out of the marketplace. And the word established is often synonymous with the idea of a product's guarantee. This product is good. You buy it. Last a long time. Something like that. It is a market term. It has the idea of a guarantee. It is, it is an assurance. So when you buy a product at a store and you look at the guarantee, what, is, what does that communicate to you? Communicates to you the confidence of the maker in the product. A 30-day warranty means buy at your own risk. A 10-year warranty means they think they've done a good job. They think that this product will go the distance. Paul is saying 
as he uses this term for the gospel, is that when you receive the gospel, you have received an eternal guarantee, an eternal assurance. You can trust in this gospel every day of your life. It will wake up with you in the morning. It will go to bed with you at night. It will not let go of you. It will supply you your need. It brings Christ to you as you need him every day. And when you pass, he will be there to give you all life without end. That is the gospel guarantee. And so Paul says he wants us to be established in the faith. Well, how do we become established? How do we, how do we learn this guarantee? It comes through experience. It comes through seeing the gospel work day in and day out. I had a beautiful moment last night with one of my kids before bed. He, he had a, a nightmare. And he was scared. And it was, you know, hard to console a kid in a nightmare. But I went up to his bed, I laid next to him, and I said to him, let's recite that first question from the catechism. Who do you belong to? And we said it together. We, we recited the words. We are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I said to him, Right now in your fears, you belong to God and Jesus Christ. Are your fears bigger than that? And it calmed him down. And he slept. That is an an experience of the guarantee of the gospel. I love getting to know more elder members of our church. I I still remember and was deeply impressed with Roseanne Wickbolt who was 92, and she had so many trials in her life, but I would sit with her over time, and she would just just burst with the words, God is so good to me. God is so good to me. She was 92. She had been through it all, and yet she said, God is good to me. She had experienced through the trials a Savior that delivers, that does not forsake, The more aged you are in the church, the more critical your role is. Your testimony confirms to those who are younger that cancer is not the worst thing that can happen. Because God stayed with somebody who's 10 years on who went through cancer. That is one of the values of the multi-generations of the church. And again, being established in what? In the faith just as you were taught. It's the same gospel. It doesn't change as you get older. We don't need to mold it or meld it or, 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 or tweak it. As you get older, it works for you with the first day of your faith to the last day. The whole point of the gospel is that, is that we never grow from it. We only spend our lives growing in it. And that is because the gospel tells us Jesus is enough. And that never fails. Look to him and your trials. And he will confirm and establish your faith. Fourth, it activates us. We see that, that when we, when we 
live in the gospel. Uh, it means that the gospel grounds us, it forms us, it confirms us, and finally we see it activates us. When he says these words, abounding in thanksgiving. And for the first time, Paul moves to a strictly active verb, which is to say this is kind of your part. All the others were, were passive, were, were God working into you. But this last one is you working out what's been put in. And so it's active. It's the consequence of being grounded, formed, and confirmed. If you are living in, you will then live it out. There is that logic. Healthy roots yield bumper crops of fruits. That's pretty basic. And so the verb here is to abound or to overflow in thanksgiving. I mean, think of a picture of a bucket absolutely filled. And you try to carry that bucket across the room. It sloshes out this way and sloshes out that way. It can't help but slosh what's in it everywhere it goes. If you were living in the good news, you are an overflowing bucket sloshing out in the world the good news of Jesus. Perhaps think about a a sponge. You are a sponge that has been saturated with Jesus. The smallest pressing on you brings out, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is good. Jesus takes care of me. Thank you, Jesus. Gratitude and thanksgiving. And the beautiful thing is that everybody can do this. I've been to nursing homes, people who have hardly any mental faculties and, and no physical faculties. And I've, I've led them in worship. And when we sing the old hymns, they sing them back because they are so deeply pressed. They, the knowledge of, of praise has been so rooted into them that even these old hymns, they just kind of uncontrollably sing. And it's a beautiful thing. Every day, we can give gratitude to God because every day is a gift. And the gospel teaches us that over and over again. So let's conclude. There was some other good stuff, but we're going to conclude. The gospel that gives us life is our life. We live in the gospel when it grounds us and forms us and confirms us and activates us. Does that describe you? Does that describe your passion? Pursue living in the good news. Because the best thing of all hasn't even been said yet. Living in the gospel prepares us for eternal joy. As the Apostle John says, abide, which you could translate as live in, live in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed. You see, living in the good news means that at the end, you will meet your Savior and Lord with confidence and no shame 
Because he has perfected you and justified you and made you his own every day that you were here and holds on to you for all time. Beloved, live in the gospel for great joy awaits all who do. Amen.